And so there are many ways in which in a multilingual classroom, in an ESL classroom, you can advance social justice. And the key way that I see that you can do it is to never accept the fact that languages are viewed as being better. Some languages are being viewed as better than others. So um, yes, the students are there to learn English, but that does not mean that Spanish or Urdu or Vietnamese are not incredibly useful and valuable and valued languages. And you can bring that message forward by including the whole person. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, English language learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How are languages inextricably connected to other aspects of society, and what does that mean about preserving and valuing them? What strategies can educators of multilingual students use to incentivize their students to help keep their home languages thriving, even while they are drawn to use English as the language of record? How have globalization, technology, and emotional connections all played a vital role in preserving and valuing languages? We discuss these questions and much more with Professor David Harrison, Professor of Linguistics and Cognitive Science at Swarthmore College and National Geographic Society Explorer. But before we get started with this episode, on behalf of all of us at Elevation, I want to thank listeners who encourage students to apply for the Elevation Scholarship. We received hundreds of applications, and we've already begun the review process. We look forward to announcing our five winners and celebrating their success here on Highest Aspirations and beyond. And just as importantly, thank you for all you do on behalf of your students. More about our guest, David Harrison is a linguist, author, and advocate for the documentation and revitalization of endangered languages. He is currently serving as Associate Provost for Academic Programs and Professor of Linguistics at Swarthmore College. Since 2007, he has been affiliated with the National Geographic Society, co-directing their Enduring Voices project and providing cultural expertise for expeditions, publications, and web content. His early career research focused on Tuvan and Turkic languages of central Siberia and western Mongolia. More recently, he has been engaged in field work in India, Papua New Guinea, Micronesia, and Vanuatu. His research explores the sounds, lexicon, grammar, and cultural knowledge found in the world's languages. In his laboratory at Swarthmore College, Harrison works with students and speakers of minority and endangered languages to create talking dictionaries and other digital tools. Harrison co-starred in Ironbound Films' Emmy-nominated 2008 documentary film, The Linguists, bringing attention to efforts to preserve dying languages. He also serves as a director of research for the nonprofit Living Tongues Institute for Endangered Languages. Harrison has authored several books and lectures widely on the value of linguistic and cultural diversity. If you attended the TESOL conference in Atlanta in 2019, you may remember that David Harrison was the keynote speaker, and our listeners will also be happy to know that Harrison began his career as an ESL teacher, which is how our interview begins. This is part one of an incredible two-part series. I hope you enjoy the conversation. One additional note, we did have some challenges with the audio quality at times, but we decided not to cut anything because, frankly, everything that David Harrison said was really interesting and pertinent to the conversation. Professor David Harrison, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you, Steve. I'm happy to be here and with all of your listeners who are educators. 
Yeah, it's great to have you. You know, when we talked, uh, I guess it was about a month ago now, um, you mentioned that you were at TESOL. I think it was 2018. You were the keynote speaker in Atlanta. And uh, after looking at the YouTube video that uh, the SWAT talk that you did, it's about five minutes long. I really regretted that I was there, but somehow missed the keynote. I think maybe I was setting up the booth. So uh, I'm glad to have this opportunity to chat with you now. Yeah, TESOL 2019 in Atlanta was really a highlight for me. It felt like a homecoming in ways, partly because I grew up not too far from there, but also because years ago, early in my career, I was an ESL teacher and it felt great to be among colleagues and to be reminded of the important work that they're doing. Yeah, I was, I mean, I watched it again. You can find that on the TESOL website. We'll link to it. And it was amazing. And thanks for the correction. It was 2019. Um, and I actually want to start there with what you just mentioned that you're, I think your first job, I think you mentioned to me was an ESL teacher. You're in Poland and Russia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and we're going to get into the the amazing work that you're doing now. But was that your first experience with language education? And, and if so, how did those experiences um, inform your your career path, which has been really interesting? Well, Steve, I'm basically a failed language learner in that I studied or tried to learn various languages in elementary school, in high school, German, French, in college a little bit, French, and, and did not seem to be able to and thought I had no aptitude for it. And then I just happened to um, sign up for a foreign exchange program in my senior year in college. They sent me off to Poland because it was the one available program that had an open space when I stopped by the, the study abroad office. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know a word of Polish, of course. And to learn in Polish, I'm going to pronounce it for you now. Maybe you... it's Jivienca Cisnaszcza. Jivienca Cisnaszcza. I just, yeah, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I did it very well. That I don't think that uh, that fits in with my knowledge of uh, of Spanish. <laughs> yeah, Polish is a tongue twister language, and I had it means 916, and I had to say that every time I came into the dormitory. Uh, because they, you had to ask for your room number, your key at the front desk. And uh, the ladies at the front desk had a lot of fun. They room I was in, but they made me say it every time. And so what I, the revelation to me of suddenly finding myself in an immersion setting, and I learned Polish within six months, and that not only could I learn languages if I was put in an immersion setting and I had to, wanted to eat, but I really enjoyed it. It exercised parts of my brain that perhaps had been dormant and it was really exciting and it gave me another view of the world. And so then I was off and I learned Russian and Ukrainian and a bunch of Slavic languages. And I found, and that's kind of how I became a linguist. I also happened to be living in Eastern Europe at a time when they were reorienting themselves from communism to cap everybody wanted to learn some English. And so English teachers were in huge demand. Mm -hmm. I had no business really being an ESL teacher, no qualifications. My degree is in political science, uh, but I was a native speaker. So they said, hey, you could teach English. And so suddenly I found myself 
in an ESL classroom with some really eager Polish and Russian students. And they were looking to me, you know, to help them acquire English. And what you realize when you're put in that situation is that just because you're a native speaker doesn't mean you can explain the language mm-hmm. or explain the rules to someone else. You can model it, but you can't necessarily explain it because grammar is unconscious knowledge that a speaker has. So I was very quickly, uh, you know, realized that I needed more linguistic and formal education and training on how to educate in language. Yeah. You know, so much of what you said, I'm sure it certainly resonates with me and my experience, although I kind of went in the opposite direction. I thought that I was going to go abroad and teach English abroad. And I had this crazy, unique experience of being put in a high school classroom, much like you with absolutely no qualifications to do so. Uh, And I turned out that I really liked it, um, even though when I started, I probably wasn't very good at it. I also had no experience. Um, But uh, but it's funny how those those curveballs that life throws kind of make, you know, gives give you those experiences that that really inform your future. And boy, your your uh, your example about having to say the number, I think it was 916. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in Polish again. Um, but uh, it, that's like that's the experience, you know, of having to. And you said when you're somewhere and you have to eat, and you have to live. And that's how you learn the language. It brought back memories and mine was way easier. It was in, it was in Spain. But I remember walking up to the to the building where I was going to be staying for the next semester and having to ring the bell uh, on the ninth floor and introduce myself to the family who who was taking me in. And I remember so vividly how difficult that was and how many times I rehearsed it before I actually hit the hit the the bell. Um, and and I think about that often when I, you know, um, am, am talking with people who are working with English learners in this country and the daily, not daily, I mean, really uh, constant experiences they have like that. Um, so I think it, it's, it, they're great experiences that also help uh, hopefully build some empathy um, for us. Yeah, you really hit on it. I mean, empathy, you learn when there's an emotional component to the learning um, or uh, some kind of physical component, whether it's hunger or feeling of, you know, needing people to talk to or um, just the thrill of living in a different culture. That is what accelerates and enhances learning. So you can be effective in a classroom setting if you can bring people's emotions into the learning task. Yeah, hundred percent, which is which is challenging and difficult to do, but which a lot of uh, educators are doing really, really well. So let's transition a little bit to uh, your work as an environmental linguist. I mean, first of all, that's that's a really unique title that intrigued me right away. Um, and you've had the opportunity to travel to what you call language hotspots around the world, where languages are in danger of of going extinct. Um, and I think given the makeup of our listeners, I don't think we necessarily have to make a case why it's important to preserve languages. But you have some really specific and really interesting reasons that we should and what happens um, when languages uh, die. And I think some of those reasons may be, may be unexpected. And I want to ground this in a quote from your, your SWAT talks from Swarthmore College um, YouTube video that you did. You said, we have to approach cultures with a sense of curiosity, but also a sense of humility. We don't know everything, and we don't even know what it is we don't know. Um, Talk about that quote and how it relates to what I just said about what happens is happens when languages go extinct. 
Well, there's a world of knowledge out there, Steve, and um, we don't even know the this extent and the scope of what can be found in endangered languages. And we don't know what we don't know, but I'll give a couple examples. I've been working recently in the South Pacific with a team of botanists. And I, I chose that location because it's a language hotspot. Um, lang language hotspot is a term that I coined about a decade ago and I published the first language hotspots map in National Geographic Magazine. It identifies the places in the world that have the greatest diversity and concentration of languages, many endangered languages. The botanists I'm working with chose that location in, in Vanuatu in the South Pacific because it's a biodiversity hotspot. And so we've been working there five years now. And in, the, in that time, the botanists have collected samples of approximately 2,000 plants. And about half of those plants, about a thousand of the plants that the botanists have found, completely new to science. They're not listed in any scientific database yet. They don't have scientific names or taxonomic identifications. It's amazing. But the local people and the local experts we talk to, they know every single one of those plants. They have a name for it in their native language, and they know its medicinal and healing properties. So this is the knowledge gap between what we, th we think we know in our scientific framework and what we don't. We are confronted with this very rich knowledge base that's only found in small languages. And these, these thousand names for plants that I mentioned, that plants that are not yet known to science but are known to local people, that's in the Anayom language. And the Anayom language probably has somewhere between just five hundred and a thousand speakers mm -hmm. so if you think about that immense knowledge base about the plants and it's only known to a very small community of people so that's what's lost if if this language were to go extinct we would lose intimate knowledge of thousands of plants and their medicinal properties and that's why i'm an environmental linguist so that's a term that i coined very recently and introduced for the first time at tsol 2019 I guess I've been an environmental linguist for about 20 years, but I hadn't put a label on it yet. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I became one is that, you know, I, I went out to do what we call field linguistics or documentary linguistics, which is you go out, you live with the community, yak herder, you learn their language and you write technical description that's not really interesting to anyone except linguists and then you write a dictionary of the language and so forth had all the tools that an ivy league provide me with i can do a phonetic transcription of any language and write down all the sounds i can do morphological analysis and make apart a language into its components and analyze it that's my medical linguist but when i got to what was interesting to me was every conversation we had turned to nature. They wanted to talk about plants, about other. And so this theme of nature just kept asserting it. So I realized that what they wanted to talk about was different than what I wanted to ask about. And so I needed to adjust 
my expectations and kind of scientific questions I was asking. And so I was pushed in this direction of the environment. And it's happened in every community I've worked with over the last 20 years because they're indigenous people. They live in a much closer and dependent relationship with nature. And so they're environmental experts. And so now the linguistics work that I do reflects and is shaped by this environmental knowledge. Yeah. So in, in, a, in a sense, probably in a, in, a, in a large sense, I mean, you adapted the work that you were doing to make sure that it was applicable, not only to what you had hoped to do and perhaps what your university hoped to do, but what the people of those uh, places needed and, and, and wanted. Um, and I, I just I was two connections there. Uh, you know, one, I, first of all, the term environmental linguist, the reason that's so intriguing to me is because I actually, in college, I started off as an uh, environmental science major and then switched to a Spanish major. And when people asked me what I wanted to do with my life, I said, boy, I'd love to mix those two together some way. Um, and so you've, you've cracked the code, I think, and provided a title for people like me that maybe you're trying to do those two things, which I think is amazing um, uh, and really inspirational. And then the second thing that probably relates more to listeners um, is, is that, you know, when you talk about sort of adapting the work that you're doing to make sure that the people who you are working with get something out of this as well, which I know is really important to you, that's very similar to what uh, good educators are, are doing in the classroom with students who are coming from uh, lots of different cultures and speaking lots of different languages. Um, and so I, I want to kind of try to make a connection here um, with the work that that especially English learners, uh, teachers of English learners are doing every day. Um, I, ju I just want to say I'll ground it in a quote, another quote like th this was I loved this quote. And I actually I told you earlier, I just I happened to watch the video again this morning, that YouTube video, that five minute when I this quote I thought was so applicable to the work you're doing, but also teachers. It's, My work is based on reciprocity. It's based on respect and it's based on a sense of wonder and awe. I mean, that to me is, should be not only the work that you're doing, but the work that actually educators are doing there. So go ahead, make a connection there because I think it's really important. You know, educators are so committed and so dedicated to their work and they don't do it for the money. And there's an, a very strong sensibility of social justice in education because it helps people break through biases and prejudices and social disadvantages and it elevates them and their future possibilities. And this is true in linguistics as well, especially because I specialize in studying the world's most endangered, smallest, most oppressed, most minoritized languages. And they're always on an unequal playing field. They're always at a disadvantage. And I work for social justice and I advocate for social justice to try to raise the status of these languages and their speakers to bring them uh, respect and recognition. Uh, for example, the Koro Aka language, which my team and I worked on in India, when we first recorded it, it wasn't recognized by anyone as being a language and even the local people and even the people who speak it spoke of it somewhat condescendingly saying, oh, it's just a dialect, you know, but we were able to establish that it's not a dialect of anything. It's a unique language and it deserves recognition and respect. I know that educators care about social justice. They wouldn't be in the business of education. And so there are many ways in which 
in a multilingual classroom, in an ESL classroom, you can advance social justice. And the key way that I see that you can do it is to never accept the fact that languages are viewed as being better. Some languages are being viewed as better than others. So um, yes, the students are there to learn English, but that does not mean that Spanish or Urdu or Vietnamese are not incredibly useful and valuable and valued languages. And you can bring that message forward by including the whole person. You know, your students are multilingual people and they should be celebrated and acknowledged as such. Yes, they're there to learn English, but they bring with them a whole other worldview, way of thinking about the world that they bring from their other languages. And that is not as cultural baggage or as something that's holding them back um, to becoming better English speakers, but it should re be regarded as a premier intellectual and social asset. So the more we can leverage that and celebrate that, the more effective you'll be in your teaching and we'll move towards a more just and equitable society where multiple languages and the personal ability to speak languages is valued. Yeah, very well said. Thank you for bringing up that social justice piece and 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 for those inspirational words about educators. I mean, it's it's uh, it, you know, it's 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 funny. It's a combination of that really heavy work of social justice, but also that just very human trait of being curious and being, um, uh, you know, humble and and respectful uh, toward toward all students, you know, and, and their languages and what they bring to the table. And we talk about taking an asset-based approach all the time and using uh, both languages as much as possible, um, English and whatever the native language is. But I think you just brought it, uh, it kind of brought it to another level, which I really appreciate. Well, we have a responsibility to counterbalance. You know, we have a responsibility to counterbalance the negative messages that these students are getting from society, which is telling them that your heritage language is not important. It's holding you back. You speak with an accent. You know, it's giving them all these negative messages that encourage them or incentivize them to abandon a heritage language, speak only English. But as English teachers, it, it should not be, and I don't think it is our goal uh, to create a world of monolingual people. Uh, you know, that's, that what a, what a poor place that would be, you know, and how interesting it would be. And so, yes, we do have this responsibility has just kind of fallen on language teachers, ESL teachers in particular to, yes, to teach English, but to leverage the asset of bilingualism that their students bring to the task. That's it for part one of our interview with Professor David Harrison. In part two, we'll get more into how technology and globalization can actually help preserve languages. And we'll also get into some very specific examples of case studies of people who uh, Professor Harrison has worked with in his travels. And finally, we'll talk about the emotional connection of language. And this is where teachers of multilingual learners can really have an impact. Thanks for listening to part one. And we'll see you again here for part two.
Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.